Our scripture this morning is found in Acts, verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction was with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to the brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there passed away, he and our fathers. And from there they were removed to Shechem, and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. I tend to meet people on one side or the other. They either believe the distortion that says we're creators of our own destiny. We can think ourselves thin. Boy, if that were true, I would weigh about 128 pounds. We can think ourselves rich. If that were true, I don't know how many of you would be here today. We can think ourselves, the power of this and that and the other thing. We, 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 there's a whole group of people who buy into this notion that we are captains of our own destiny. It doesn't seem to matter what biology says. It doesn't seem to matter what fate or circumstance says. It doesn't seem to matter what the limits of our social skills or educational levels are. We, we have this kind of, some of us, this grandiose idea that we can do anything or be anything. On the other side is this sort of idea of woe is me. There really is nothing I can do to affect anything. Everything happens to me. I'm simply a victim of circumstances in life. Whatever comes, I just kind of have to deal with it. I have to play the, the hand I'm dealt, so to speak. I'm not really empowered to choose or to act or to make a difference I'm just, I'm just along for the ride. Fatalism. Most of us are somewhere in between those two things, hopefully. But I meet a lot of people who think one way or the other that way. And there's some truth that lies between. There is some truth to the limits that we each have. There is some truth to the fact that accident sometimes changes the course of our lives or of history. There is some truth to the notion that we are subject to the circumstance we're given. But there is also truth to the power of choice. And there's also truth to the grace of God. And these are the things that come to play as I think about two essential themes looking forward into the new year. One is the theme of 
this, this idea of who we want to be. Who is it that we are going to choose to be as individuals and as a people in this year? What is it that we're called to? Where is it that we want to go? How do we envision that for ourselves? And the second part of it is how do we handle what we are afraid of or what we can't control? There's lots of talk, a lot of buzz and excitement about the things the new president is doing and lots of controversy about the economic plan and most Americans are by a thin margin, a majority kind of hopeful at the moment, but there's also this sort of overwhelming sense of dread for the notion that the economy may not have bottomed out yet by any stretch. I read the internet like uh, you do. Some of you read papers or other sources, but I read this last week or two that there is an estimated 70,000 stores that will close their doors in 2009. Now that is a lot of retail going out of business. And if you think about that, since most stores don't want to pay full-time wages or have to deal with the benefit packages involved, we're not talking about a few people employed, we're talking about uh, larger stores employing dozens or hundreds because they have part-time employees. And if you think about all of the corporate management that goes into these centers, we're talking well over a million jobs. I know some of you quietly are suffering with job loss and with change and with the fear of what this year has. Some of you are business owners and you see your sales down. Some of you aren't sure if your job is going to be the next one cut at corporate. So there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a certain question or a cloud hanging over the year and the immediate future about what our fate will be. So these are the things in tension this morning when we come to our text, which was read for you this morning by Julie from Acts chapter 7. Now I want to set this text for you because it's incredibly valuable to get the setting for this story. The setting is the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was not an apostle. But Stephen was an early convert, Jewish convert to Christianity of Greek, I think of Greek descent. He was appointed a deacon. You recall that there were uh, troubles in the early church, questions in the early church over the distribution of things and goods. And so the apostles appointed deacons to handle some of the practical matters that were involved in caring for the widows and the orphans and so forth. And there was an essential tension between uh, the Greek or the uh, non-Jewish orphans and widows and Jewish ones and some, some question there about equity and fairness. So the apostles wanting to stick to the ministry of the word, administrating churches, founding churches, these sorts of things that they had to do, wisely set up and appointed a system of deaconing in which Stephen was one of the earliest in the church of Jerusalem. An important man. And in his course of faith and duty, he comes to be crosswise with the Sanhedrin and to be examined by them. And it is in that setting that he tells this recounting of Israel's history. 
It's a very interesting recounting of Israel's history because of all that it omits. There's just scads of material that he leaves out in what he's talking about. It's a very short testimony that is recorded for us there in chapter 7. And at least a quick read would say that Abraham, Joseph, and Moses are the primary stories that are shared. And somehow that leads very briefly into David and Solomon in the temple. And at that point, our storyteller tells us that Stephen moves into something of a diatribe. For the glory of Solomon's temple is not where the Lord lives, but the Lord lives in us. And at this point, the teeth start gnashing and everybody is angry and he is guilty in their minds of blasphemy because he goes on to tell them, is there not a single prophet that you haven't persecuted? And now you've killed the Lord. What a rebuke. Just evoked Abraham, the father of the faithful, Joseph, who might be accused of vanity but doesn't really seem to have any major faults, to Moses, who... Uh, was not permitted to lead the people of Israel to the promised land, but saw it and was resurrected upon his death and appeared to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now we move to the glory of Solomon, the golden age of Israel, the grandest time in its history ever. Such was their prosperity. I mean, if we ever get to the chance to go to Jerusalem together, I will show you the stones of the Temple Mount where Solomon's temple was. Some of these are so big, I don't know how we would move them today. They're Goliath stones stacked and fitted. This mount just goes on for yard after yard after yard. And Solomon's temple was ornate and beautiful, made from the best of things. And for the Israelite people, this center of worship and the presence of God being so important. If you could see the size of the Temple Mount in relationship to the old city of Jerusalem, you would be amazed at what proportion of space in this city is given to the Temple of God. You'd be amazed. What an insult Stephen hurls when he suggests that that is not where the presence of God is and when he accuses them of killing all of God's messengers. And sure enough, we know the story. At this point, he is uh, accused of blasphemy and he's stoned. He sees a vision of heaven that's recorded for us. But the stories all deal with hands dealt on the one side and choices made on the other. And perhaps the most uh, clear of those is the story of Joseph. Born the eldest son of the second wife of Jacob, 
one of two sons of Rachel, the beloved wife, a favorite son, a big mistake when parents make the choice to favor one over another. Some of you bear the scars of that or the hatred of your siblings, one of the two. And Joseph is so disdained after foolishly sharing a couple of visions, which were prophetic, by the way, that he is cast into a pit and thankfully not executed or killed or abandoned by his brothers, but sold instead to Amalekite traders who move him through the wilderness, finally taking him to Egypt. He's picked up by captain of the guard. I don't know how he was treated initially. The records don't say. I don't know if he arrived in Egypt in good shape or not. It says that he was a handsome and well-built lad. That he was intelligent and capable. And that he was a believer in the true God. And he ends up in Potiphar's house and he does his best. He makes the choice in the circumstance to do what he can do and to do the very best he can do. You know the simple, you've read this to your children, I hope, a thousand times. Potiphar's wife takes notice of him and makes a pass at him and ends up holding his cloak and rebuffed, she goes to her husband and accuses Joseph of trying to rape her and produces the cloak that she has held on to as evidence. Now the fact of the matter is, is that Potiphar, if Captain, Captain Potiphar, the guard, if he had believed his wife, this would have been the end of the story. There were no laws against killing slaves in Egypt and he would have had him executed on the spot. He doesn't believe him, but to appease his wife, men, we've got to be careful when we go to appease our wives. We've got to be careful because Potiphar, on the one hand, does a good thing by not killing Joseph, and on the other, he throws him into prison and forgets him to rot. And we're not talking about the nice prisons with air conditioning and, and yard tours and gyms and televisions and so forth, we're talking about pretty crude digs. And while there, Joseph makes himself useful. Joseph does what he can. And he becomes noticed by the captain of the prisoner guard who begins to utilize him down there and value him. And one day two very prominent people or uh, important people end up in prison and he ministers to them, the king's butler and the king's baker. You know the story there too. They each have visions that prove prophetic. The butler once again serves the king and the baker is hanged. And Joseph says to the butler, when you go back to the king, remember him. 
remember me to him. And of course, the butler does not until Pharaoh himself is plagued with a dream he doesn't understand. Very disturbing, kind of apocalyptic dream. He's anxious because things are a little too good in Egypt. Do you ever get nervous when things are too good? Hello? No? Oh, you're, uh, we're on different pages if you never get nervous when things get good. I'm of the sort of mindset that when things get too good, I start looking at my back. When things are too good, I'm wondering when the other foot is going to fall. And he dreams that seven beautiful, peaceful, cud-chewing, grass-eating cows by the riverside are carnivorously and ravenously eaten by seven ugly, skinny, mangy, dull-eyed cows. And it doesn't make them fat or pretty. And Joseph is finally remembered. And in Stephen's brief recounting, Joseph makes it to second only to Pharaoh in charge of building up the stores of grain for the seven years of plenty that will be in preparation for the seven years of famine that will be. And through the famine, listen to this carefully, through the famine, Joseph's family is restored to him. That is the testimony of Stephen. Well, you can read this for yourself. It's about Genesis 39, 40, right in there. And you can read the extended story. It's very powerful and very touching. But as simple a story as it is, the context in both sets these extremes, doesn't it? Joseph himself has a set of circumstances. They change on him suddenly and much against his will. He's, his lot is now with a group of people who are nomadic, traitors. He knows who they are, perhaps, at least by having seen their caravans before or dealt with them, but he is not one of their people, and now he is a slave going to a strange land. He's sold to a man who's trained in the most brutal of arts and is the defender of the king. And if you've seen any specials on the pharaohs, these were pretty powerful kings. Their captain of the guards would have been uh, uh, pretty interesting characters, I imagine. He's falsely accused in the course of rendering excellent service and ends up in prison. And you can hear the prayers. Boy, if this were David, what would the prayers sound like? Lord, what have you done? I'm in this how can I be here? Where are you? Have you forgotten me? Oh, Lord, thanks for your deliverances. But who are these Amalekites? And will your hand not smite them dead? I'm being a little facetious, but David was kind of all over the place in his psalms. And I can just see him by the time he gets to the prison there in Egypt really wondering about where God is in his life. 
Joseph doesn't, isn't recorded as wondering those things, although you may well have. He's recorded as doing what he could do, and doing it well, and being remembered and then forgotten, and being honored and then forgotten. And it would be a pattern that would be for his people because another king would take Pharaoh's place who knew the Israelites not and would enslave them for over 400 years. The pattern continues, but so does the blessing. For Joseph's portion of the 12 will not be one. There is no tribe of Joseph. It will be two. Ephraim and Manasseh to Joseph is a double blessing. There are going to be things this next year we have no control over. That is the way life works. Fate will take its course. Accident will work its wonders and its terrors. We will be at the right place at the right time at moments and we may be at the wrong place at the right time at moments. Our fortunes are not secure. We don't know what is to come. But who we choose to be this year will matter. What we resolve in our hearts to do will matter. It mattered in the story of Joseph and it mattered in the story of Stephen. Because as Stephen is telling yet these other stories, he's recounting God's call, God's affirmation, God's blessing, and God's persistence in communicating with his people. He's recounting right up to the saving moments of these words on the cross, it is finished when our Savior laid down his head and died. Nothing about this is easy. Nothing about this seems to make sense when we're in the middle of it. But Stephen sees his maker. And I'm not talking about his soul going to heaven. I'm talking about the vision as he dies by stoning. Who will you be this year? Will you be faithful? Will you do your best? Will you be helpful? Will you bless those who only bless you or will you bless those who hurt you? or persecute you? Will you be the type of person that is God's person, whether you're facing life or death, prosperity or bankruptcy? That's the question before you. And thank God we have set before us examples and because of Joseph and because of Stephen and most of all because of Jesus we can choose 
to be God's people this year. And so, Lord, we pray that you will make your people faithful because of your great faithfulness. We thank you in Jesus' name.